Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's episode, I'm thrilled to have on Clara Brenner, co-founder of Urban Innovation Fund. Along with her co-founder, Julie, the firm provides seed capital and regulatory support to entrepreneurs that are seeking to solve tough urban issues to shape the future of our cities. In this episode, we talk about their very unique experience in raising their first fund, their experience with special interest LP groups, and the benefits of being hyper-specialized. Without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Adura Advisors, who I've worked with closely for over a decade and is home to hundreds of private equity and venture fund managers. As someone that's personally very discriminated when it comes to service quality, I found Adura to be a firm that pairs best of breed service with the type of technology demanded by today's fund managers and LPs. Through their internally developed software platform, FundPanel.io, fund managers and LPs can easily manage reporting, capital calls, and performance tracking. Regardless of whether you're an emerging manager just starting out, or you're a seasoned firm looking to supplement an internal team, Adura's back office solution rises to the challenge of supporting your firm's specific needs. Listeners of Venture Unlocked receive the first quarter of management company services free with promo code UNLOCKED. To redeem, email dev at aduroadvisors.com. That's D-E-V at A-D-U-R-O-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Clara, it's so great to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be here. So let's start up with your background, if we can. You came from working at different companies in the urban tech space to starting an accelerator and now being a full-time investor. Tell us what led to that and a little bit of the history of both yourself and you know the fund itself. My background is actually in commercial real estate development. And I went back to business school in ooh, 2010 um, because I thought I was going to start a company in that space. Um, but while I was there, I ended up uh, helping out a friend who I thought was starting a real estate development firm, but it turns out he was starting a tech company uh, that became uh, Fundrise, which is, I guess, the easiest way to describe it. It's kind of like a betterment type product for private real estate assets, and they've gone on to, to raise quite a bit of money, and, and uh, they're an awesome company. My good friend at business school, Julie, had kind of a similarly transformative experience also working at a tech company. So her background is actually in, in political polling and political consulting. And she had gotten a job at what was then a little company, is now a really big company called Revolution Foods. Um, they're a healthy school meal provider here in the Bay Area, although I think now they do something like $300 million in annual revenue. They're a big company now. But this was right around the time that companies like Lyft and Airbnb were you know, just, just getting off the ground. And uh, we felt like they had a lot in common with the places where we were working. You know, they were solving really interesting community challenges in cities. And at the same time, they were scaling in ways you just don't see community organizations do. Any good grad students, we embarked on a, a research study of, of what we started calling the urban innovation space. Um, and by that, we meant, you know, companies using technology to make urban living better um, across a variety of, of industry verticals. And Ultimately, we found that these companies have a lot in common, uh, most notably a lot of regulatory and political challenges as they look to scale. Uh, we kind of surveyed the investor landscape at the same time, and it was pretty clear to us that no one was investing in the space in a concerted manner, and they definitely were not providing these companies with good regulatory and political support, as is you know, evidenced by the news every day. So we ended up taking our research to Blackstone when we graduated and, and pitched them on the idea of creating kind of a, a showcase portfolio and kind of helping us validate our research that there was a space called urban innovation and that they did benefit from a lot of the same 
resources we, we were thinking about, uh, most notably you know, regulatory and political. So we did that. Uh, it was an accelerator called Tumul. We ran that for three years. That's actually where we met you and Sam. That portfolio did well in a, a very short period of time and also um, helped us really hone in on the, the regulatory value add and kind of gave us the credibility to go launch a more traditional fund, um, the Urban Innovation Fund, in 2016. It sounds like the plan, you know, from the start in launching the accelerator first was always to be a full-fledged investing firm. Given that construct and the type of companies that you're looking at, which ultimately are solving these real world problems and do social good. I remember in 2015 and 16, the term impact was thrown around fairly loosely and it started to become diluted. When you were raising that first one, which I think ended up at close to 25 or maybe slightly above that. How did you think about positioning so that you can get the tailwinds of you know, the social good and the impact, but don't get caught into the web of LPs thinking that, hey, you're just an impact fund and not truly a fund that is looking at the best companies that are solving the biggest problems with the biggest outcomes? First and foremost, I would just note that we are a market rate fund and we do aspire to top decile VC returns. Um, that said, we do have a really unique thesis. Um, it wasn't intentional, but we, we found that our story was really resonating with this new class of investor um, that we started to notice. Um, internally, we call them impact curious investors. I don't know if that's what they would call themselves. Um, basically, that's you know institutions that are that are investing out of their corpuses or their treasuries. You know, first and foremost, pursuing market rate returns, um, but looking to start aligning their investment practices a little bit more closely with their organizational objectives. And um, that could take a variety of forms. It, you know, they could be interested in just adding some differentiated investment strategies to their portfolio. Maybe they are interested in diverse managers or emerging managers, or maybe they do have an explicit impact mandate. But regardless, we, we found that our pitch really straddled those worlds nicely and kind of aligned with that type of investor. Um, so that was really kind of a happy accident. Can we deconstruct that first fundraise? Because you were out there raising a, what we would consider a micro VC and $25 million. And the natural fit for somebody raising a fund of that size would be going to the family offices, high net worth individuals. Your composition was over 80% institutional LPs. And you just mentioned that you had these impact curious. Was that something that you learned during the fundraise? Or was that intentional when you first launched that, hey, there are these people, we need to go institutional, it's the right route. Maybe walk us through a little bit about the pre-fundraise raise and how you thought about the strategy and then what you learned throughout the process. I would love to tell you that it was intentional, but <laughs> it really was the, the, um, the process of elimination and just ultimately figuring out who, who really resonated with our story. Um, the majority of our investors were institutions, are institutions that I would put in that impact curious but bucket. Um, so these are you know hospital systems, foundation endowments and the like. And um, we were frankly just really lucky to ride that wave of interest because honestly, we just didn't know any rich people. <laughs> um, and having listened to your podcast, I think that that is a very common way to start, you know, friends and family. We didn't have that network. And so um, I don't know how else we would have raised fund one if not for the support of institutions. People have increasingly high expectations about where they put their money. And, and that's true for institutions as well. You know, whether it's a, a really large family office with, 
younger family members coming into their own and who, who really want to feel proud about where they're devoting their time and money. Or maybe it's a foundation that doesn't want its grant makers doing one thing and, and its endowment capital funding the opposite thing, um, you know, or, or like a university whose beneficiaries want their money invested in a way that is aligned with their institution's values. Um, and so that that is a real trend that we think is only going to continue to grow. Um, and at the same time, all of these groups, without fail, without exception, are totally unwilling to sacrifice returns on any level <laughs> to achieve that values alignment. Um, and so, you know, there is a small group of funds, I would say a growing group of funds across asset classes that are starting to emerge to meet those needs. Um, and we, we definitely see ourselves as one of those firms. I like what you said there. In, in many ways, the parallel would be a company going after the type of investors that make mo- most sense from a strategic standpoint. In your case, it's really finding the right GPLP fit. And given that some of these LPs are driven by really two different components, one being financial returns, the other being strategic. I know a lot of people listening would be interested in understanding how to approach those conversations with those people that have these dual modes and dual mandates of evaluating managers and investing in managers. How did those conversations go and what should people expect? It's definitely a really intense process and it doesn't just sort of very few of them are hanging a shingle out that says, hey, I'm really interested in diverse managers. <laughs> and here's what our process is. Um, it really just took kind of an insane amount of persistence, I would say. And the the operational due diligence and, and compliance that they expect from small firms is a lot. Um, but we were lucky to have some great advice early on, including from, from you, I would say, specifically around, you know, what what pieces did we need to put in place um, to be appealing and to kind of get through that that assessment? So, you know, creating a limited partner advisory committee, getting a top-notch auditor, um, putting in place a fund administrator, even though we, we totally, I think, could have done our books on our own early on. Um, just having that in place, you know, the, our administrator has their own secure reporting portal um, that kind of meets InfoSec expectations and things that we hadn't really thought about before. Also, we found ourselves in addition to the financial reporting and the kind of narrative report that we, we offer on a quarterly and annual basis, we, we started issuing our urban outcomes report on an annual basis, which I know you've seen, um, which kind of captures case studies and, and quantifies kind of like the real world urban impacts that our portfolio are having. And, and all of those pieces combined, I think, allowed us to present a much more sophisticated offering to these institutions than, than a lot of our peers of a similar fund size. And it's absolutely necessary to kind of get through that process. Um, you could have great returns, but if you're not willing to kind of put in the legwork to meet their reporting requirements, it probably isn't going to happen. And I would say I'm really glad we did that for Fund One because it made Fund Two easier to get out of the gate <laughs> because we did have those institutions who could anchor a first close. And also, you know, we had that kind of operational rigor, which meant that we could kind of build on those first LPs from Fund One. Um, to get more institutional capital for fund two. I think it's fair to say that what you put in place in the course of the fund one was really more of an institutional infrastructure from day one with, you know, the way you thought about operational frameworks, the different service providers you picked, you know, the type of LPs that you had to, you know, show those things to get them in. 
as people do scale from you know a fund one to fund two, they don't always have the same benefits you do of having these durable investors that you know are going to invest across funds um, and across multiple fund entities and you know really anchor your first first close. What did you do between fundraises? It definitely involved just maintaining close touch with a lot of those folks who said maybe you know we're not going to be in a position to do a fund one, but we could come in potentially for a fund two. I'd say a lot of the reporting that we did, specifically that urban outcomes report, made a huge difference. Just being able to help tell our story, both providing metrics and data, but also a lot of that narrative, you know, this is why our companies are different. This is why what they're doing is so exciting. And of course, this is how they're being super successful. I would say events have been a really core part of our fundraising strategy, not necessarily even speaking at events, but simply attending especially events focused on kind of world positive issues, maybe they're thematic around mobility or water conservation, but it could just generally be, you know, events for say uh, families that are interested in learning more about world positive investing. Again, like Julie and I really, really did not have a network of high net worths um, to cultivate. And so, you know, we stumbled upon this world of, of institutions interested in what I, I guess you call world positive investing at these events um, where, you know, again, they, they probably would die before they self-identified as impact investors. Um, but they were at these events, you know, it just was sort of a process of elimination of, of kind of like finding them and, and cultivating them over time and, and sharing our story. It sounds really like it's an ongoing process where you're finding ways to maintain and, and create these touch points on a scalable basis with some level of cadence ultimately building brand around what you do, which I think is so important. I want to shift a little bit to what you said earlier around the type of companies that you're investing in. And you mentioned some of the regulatory risks that you know some of these companies have when they're solving these urban issues. How do you navigate this risk from an investment perspective to make sure you're not taking so much regulatory risk on top of the inherent startup risk and that the companies that you invest in don't get stuck in this rent cycle of regulatory morass where they have to raise a ton of capital and you get diluted down. How does that affect your investment outlook and and how you help these companies? For a long time, I would say VCs wouldn't touch highly regulated industries with a 10-foot pole. You know, many of them still won't. Um, And we, Julie and myself, we think that's very unrealistic. So many of the most highly valued private and public companies deal with regulatory risk and and issues on a regular basis. Um, Of course, some better than others, but just think, you know, this week, DoorDash, Airbnb, Uber. Um, So for us, we see regulatory support not as a risk enhancing strategy, but but honestly as a risk mitigation strategy. Our understanding of the regulatory landscape, we feel, is a competitive advantage that really attracts co-investors and founders. And and most importantly, of course, it, it helps founders win. Um, And so being able to help them navigate these challenges more effectively than their peers can be the difference between getting a a cease and desist letter from the California Public Utilities Commission and raising a Series A. It's great perspective. And certainly as we see companies look to serve different industries and bring technology to them, we're going to see more regulatory issues and challenges that need to be navigated. You brought up Airbnb and DoorDash. There's other companies, of course, like Uber and DraftKings that have had to do the same. And there are firms like Tusk Ventures out of the East Coast that is helping companies navigate and solve for these issues. What right now you're doing is 
truly competitive advantage from an investing standpoint. But I'm curious if you're seeing more seed and Series A firms look to help these companies or look to help their companies solve regulatory issues. And do you see that as a big part of the value add in the ecosystem on a go-forward basis? I would hope so. Um, And we're always excited to see other investors in the space like Tusk take on these issues. I think we have a maybe a different lens in terms of the companies that we prioritize. I think a lot of our investors are uncomfortable with what you might call sin stocks like gambling. Um, And so we, we kind of focus on a very different subset of companies. At the same time, I think they're really onto something in that, you know, obviously I think we're onto something. So many of the most highly valued public and private companies are dealing with these issues. And um, again, regardless of how you feel politically about um, about that, it is the reality on the ground. And if you want your companies to win, you need to embrace these issues head on. And I, I do think they're there exists a very different political environment and framework than than there existed when, say, Uber just got off the ground. I think a lot of municipalities and other regulatory bodies are much more sensitive to the challenges that come with letting these companies just kind of grow and and, and then become unstoppable. And so, um, you know, unless you have an absolutely, you know, gigantic war chest like a lot of the gig economy companies had, you know, what, as it related to Prop 22 recently, like you're you're very likely going to be dealing with an antagonistic partner. Um, And if you can avoid that or find ways to engage productively with regulatory partners, like why, why wouldn't you? The other thing that, you know, I also love talking about is the portfolio itself. And, you know, of course the value add frameworks, but I also feel like those things need to evolve over time, especially as you get bigger. It really centered around the notion that as you're writing bigger checks, the type of value that you have to convey and show to founders increases. And you're going, fund one is 25, fund two will be, that you're investing out of, will be over likely 2x that. I'm sure that has increased your, and I know you're investing, but it probably has increased the initial check that you're putting into companies. How has your own value add framework changed and evolved from fund one to fund two to still allow you to get into those most competitive deals at bigger check sizes? You know, I think oftentimes we gravitate towards unusual sectors that um, grow in popularity. And, you know, of course, our goal is to position our companies for very strong marquee follow on investment. But we're usually getting in really early, often as that first institutional check in the door where most of our peers are angels, frankly, from a needing to kind of wedge our way in and be uh, more aggressively competitive. That hasn't been a major challenge typically with most of our investments, I'd say, in terms of, you know, our evolution I think just recognizing this um, proliferation of multiple seed rounds and, and understanding that is that first institutional check in the door that leaves us exposed to a lot of dilution. And so writing slightly larger initial checks has become a really core focus for us for fund two. Um, but in terms of value add, you know, I would say for the vast majority of companies, we are their most active investor. And that's just because that's what Julie and I love. We love our founders. We love talking to them and, you know, answering their text messages in the middle of the night and, um, you know, helping them work through tough, tough issues and and celebrating with them when things are going well. And so, you know, I think for us, our ambition is to grow the firm and, you know, build a really best in class seed stage fund. But we also don't want to get away from what we love doing the most, which is really engaging with founders. And so while we are writing bigger checks out of fund two. Our ambition is not to to get to a place where we can't participate in that that first round because our 
allocation expectations don't align with what those companies need anymore. So it's been very clear to me that you and Julie share this central ethos of doing whatever it takes to help founders, regardless of what your stake is on the cap table. But moving to portfolio construction and thinking about ownership and initial checks versus follow-on, as you are investing out of fund too, how has that changed? And you know, what were some of the considerations that you thought of from a portfolio standpoint as you grew fund size? I would say Urban is a unique thesis and we didn't want to make it hard for LPs to get to a yes, either for fund one or, or now for fund two. Um, so in terms of construction, we went for the most vanilla of vanilla micro VC structures you could possibly imagine. You know, it's, it's 25 companies, pre-seed and seed, 50% reserve for follow-on investments, very standard Cooley docs, although I will note that our lawyer said he'd never had to replace key man with the key woman <laughs> in that, in the standard docs. But other than that, like very, very, very vanilla. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to present an offering that was exciting for LPs, but also really easy to understand. And so, you know, in terms of construction, we, we've really stayed consistent between fund one and fund two. Uh, the only real difference is that evolution in terms of the size of our first check. And that's just a, a reaction to, again, that trend we're seeing in the marketplace where we want to make sure we're controlling enough of the company early on that we have economics that make sense. But beyond that, um, we've really attempted to, to hew as closely as possible to what you think of as like a classic pre-seed or seed uh, structure in order to kind of mitigate what could be um, just, you know, questions about pattern matching from from larger LPs in the space. You're right. I mean, the uh, the portfolio construction you described, I would say, is probably equivalent to about 70 to 80 percent of the seed firms in there. And in the whole thought about making it easy for LPs to commit makes a ton of sense to me. But I also, also think about as you continue to prove yourself, you're also going to be very, very focused on the right type of LPs. And the thought about, you know, institutionals, they bring durable capital across funds, maybe bring some strategic value and governance or otherwise. Can you speak a little bit about your experiences with these institutionals? I mean, do you have an LPAC? And if so, are there things that LPs can bring outside of just durable capital? We do. We set up an LPAC for both Fund 1 and, and we now have one for Fund 2. Um, it's kind of an unusual looking LPAC. It's, you know, institutions, obviously. Um, and we realized the other day that they're all represented by a woman, um, which, again, like I challenge you to find a 100% woman-owned firm with a 100% woman-controlled LPAC. And we've just really, really valued um, the experience they, they, they bring, um, just giving us context in terms of, you know, what what else do we need to do to level up and, and be the right type of firm from a process and procedure perspective and a structure perspective to appeal to additional LPs? I think for many of our LPs, we are the smallest check they've ever written. And, and so the expectation really was communicated to us that, you know, this is something, a relationship we're hoping to grow over time. And we really don't want to mess that up. We want to make sure that we are we are doing everything we can to make these LPs happy. And so the advice they've given us is just really invaluable. And, and so we meet, I'd say, usually three times a year um, with these folks. But in between, you know, we may have a specific question about a particular deal or a particular choice we might be making from a vendor perspective. And we, we call on our LPAC regularly. 
Is there something in particular that you can really lean on these LPACs for to give really specific and helpful guidance? I mean, what is the best practice, I guess, from that standpoint? We are not shy about asking <laughs> for help. So we, we do that quite regularly. I would say, though, that just general terms and kind of like market trends, you know, we have, you know, multi-billion dollar institutional endowments uh, investing in us. And so they have just a, a great deal of, of insight and kind of a bird's eye view into a lot of uh, a lot of funds, and so being able to share, you know, this is where we are benchmarking you compared to uh, some of your peer funds, or this is, you know, this is how we've seen that clause drafted um, when you're, you know, considering a side letter, has been super, super helpful. I would also say, in terms of constructing again that urban outcomes report, which has been such a key storytelling tool for us. It really helps us kind of evangelize our story when we're not around to do it ourselves. Um, you know, these types of investors have seen a ton of those types of reports. And so being able to say this was really useful or this was really stupid or we wish someone would share this type of information, um, th that really helps us get ahead of expectations in terms of cultivating future investors. One parallel I, I like to draw is, you know, for an entrepreneur having a board of directors. And there's often thoughts about like how many people you should you have on your board. And there's a lot of opinions on the size of the board. Is there a particular size of an LPAC that you think is optimal? We've really limited it to our largest investors. And we did set sort of a percentage threshold um, to sort of say like, you have to put in this amount of money in order to to participate. And so that's kind of how we constructed it. And, and by virtue of that percentage, it, it does limit <laughs> pretty significantly the number of, of LPs uh, that are that are sitting on the LPAC. Too large, I could imagine would be a challenge at some point in that, you know, there are conflicting opinions and ultimately there may be some conflict of interest resolution responsibilities that the LPAC has and you want them to be able to get to a conclusion pretty quickly. That hasn't been a challenge for us so far, but I could see that being a challenge down the road. Um, but for us, I think the way to structure it is uh, making it something that people really want to be a part of. And what we found is that, again, in this ecosystem of what we're calling impact curious investors, um, a lot of them really want to get to know each other and kind of understand who else is looking at the space. And so I would say as much as they're happy to help us out, I would imagine that most of our LPAC members are more excited to get to know each other. <laughs> and that's why they show up at the meetings. Um, and so, because they're looking for co-investment opportunities, they want to see what other deals are out there and, and just generally have that peer network to lean on. And so we, we like the fact that we're able to kind of provide that service to them. I do find the LP community, which is getting much more inclusive and is one that has the desire to get to know each other for a variety of reasons, is a key motivating factor for sure to be on these LPACs. Going beyond that, like we've talked about portfolio construction, we've talked about how you help companies, we've talked about you know LPs and LPACs, but at the end of the day, the core IP that you have is the team. And you and Julie have known each other for a really, really long time. And in many ways, the two of you remind me, similar to you know the relationship I have with my business partner at work, I love talking about as a team, when you first come together, what are the questions that you ask each other at the outset of, you know, let's look at our personalities, let's look at our skill sets, let's look at our backgrounds, and how do you identify your roles using those unique superpowers that you each have and understanding that there are differences that either could be really, really complementary or actually could be destructive over time. When you guys came together and said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to start off with the tumble, we're going to start raising funds. If we were flying the wall, how did that conversation go? When we started the Urban Innovation Fund, I don't think we 
yet knew what our complementary skills were. Uh, we just knew we wanted to work together. Um, you know, we had gotten to know each other at, at business school first as friends, and then we did some class projects together. And then, you know, we helped found and run the largest women's event on MIT's campus. And, you know, I think I just learned really quickly that she was the hardest working person I had ever met and absolutely the best and smartest person I'd ever met. And so by the time we were graduating, you know, I just knew I had to start something with her, um, anything. I just kind of wanted to hitch my wagon to her star, honestly. Um, and I do think she felt the same way. So it was less about identifying, you know, a complementary set of skills and more just recognizing that we had a dynamic that was really special. That said, over time, I think we've discovered that there are certain things that each of us enjoys doing more than the other. Um, to be clear, you know, running a microBC means you get to do everything <laughs> from you know sourcing uh, and engaging with existing portfolio companies and and fundraising. Um, but I think Julie's absolute favorite thing is meeting with new founders. Um, you know, the prospect of slogging through a hundred plus meetings to find that one perfect company brings her kind of a stupid amount of joy. <laughs> um, and I, I love meeting founders too, but, but the thing that really excites me the most is fundraising. You know, I'm really proud of what we've built and I'm really confident in our partnership and, and what we're about to achieve and, and have achieved so far. So, you know, I'm very happy to buttonhole pretty much anybody <laughs> to tell them about it. Um, but I think Julie finds that kind of self-promotion really stressful. I, I think she does not like to toot her own horn. Um, but for me, it really lights my fire. And, and so I do think that there are, there are complementary things that um, we have settled into, but that wasn't the calculus when we first embarked on this partnership. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think a lot of these things you just learn over time. And you know, it's almost like being part of the band and figuring out who the drummer is and who plays the guitar. And figuring out like what you uniquely really enjoy and making sure that the right people are in the right places. It also speaks to the comprehensive nature of running a firm because it's not just fundraising or it's not just investing in companies, but it's a whole host of things that you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis, which I think surprises a lot of people getting into the business in the first year or two. You know, it's great just to hear how you guys have really thought about this in a really uh, constructive and really effective way. So Appreciate you going through that. I want to end with our heat check segments, which I have a series of three questions for you, starting with best piece of VC career advice you've ever received. And granted, I know it's been five years, but I'd love to hear what is the best thing you've ever heard that somebody's told you that's helped you as a VC? The best piece of advice, I would say, doesn't just apply to VC careers, but probably any career I got from uh, Ben Miller, the founder of Fundrise. He told me really early on, he said, show them the fish, hit them with the fish, and then show them the fish again. Um, and by that, I think he meant just like, keep retelling your story over and over and over again. You know, don't expect entrepreneurs or LPs to remember literally anything about you. <laughs> they, they meet a ton of, of VCs. And so, you know, being able to hammer home your message repeatedly is absolutely necessary in terms of making an impression. Um, and I think this is true for founders. We, we give our portfolio companies the same advice. You know, they need to do the same thing both for their customers as well as their investors. It's, it's vain to think that you're so special that everyone is going to just be immediately awed by everything you say and remember everything that you say. Um, it really is a, um, a requirement to be extremely repetitive in order to be effective in this space. It's such an important piece of advice, especially when you look at things like fundraising and you know, it's really tough for people when they're pitching somebody and they don't hear somebody's 
or they don't see somebody's eyes light up for the first time. And, you know, what people find is like, you got to do it over and over and over and again, and you will get better over time. But it's taking those things and saying, look, no matter what, we're going to persevere and we're going to find the people that are true believers. And uh, it's something that's hard to do, but it's important to continue to reinforce. So that's, that's great advice. I know that it's only been five years since the existence, and it's probably unlikely that you have a huge anti-portfolio at this point. But is there a particular investment that you and Julie looked at at one point or at the investment opportunity, and you didn't do it, and now you look back and say, wow, we should have done it? If so, who is it? And what did you learn from that experience? You know, we see a lot of deals in the transportation space. Um, and we found this one deal last year that had a pretty unique model. Um, and it had a good valuation uh, for a pre-seed stage round. And um, they had a really strong founding team. Um, and we tried the product and, and really loved the consumer experience. Uh, but we, we had some big questions still around whether they could nail the unit economics. They were operating in a really tough space and it was just really early. Um, fast forward to the seed round and they had actually gotten to profitability in their first market with really compelling revenue and just kind of an incredible growth rate. <laughs> and we ended up being lucky enough to, to get into that round, which ended up being super, super competitive. Um, I'd say mostly because we'd cultivated a good relationship with the founders is real users of the product. Uh, Julie in particular had become kind of a power user. <laughs> um, but it took a lot of work, a lot of work. Um, and the real lesson for us was that things can just move really quickly between pre-seed and seed. And some spaces are really innovative and just don't yet have unit economics that makes sense. Um, but if they have a bang up team and a product that people are really wild about, including us, obviously, we should still probably go for it. And so I think that will change the way we approach some pre-seed rounds moving forward, just because we, we don't want to be missing out on opportunities to get in, you know, when the, the deal economics are, are better, <laughs> um, when, when, when there are certain signs of, of really exciting opportunity. That I agree with. And, you know, you are going to learn these lessons. And I think every VC continues to learn these lessons as they go along. But, you know, as you look at the landscape of other investors out there, is there an investor that has helped you or somebody you aspire toward? If so, you know, who is that and what exactly about them that makes you so um, inspired by them? I would say the investor that I think about the most is probably my dad, who is actually not a professional investor at all. Um, but he's just, a, I think, a thoughtful person and a great teacher. And um, he wanted me to learn about investing when I was really young. And so he actually had me research the stock market and use my bat mitzvah money to invest in some companies <laughs> as a preteen. Um, and, you know, the advice he gave me at the time and that truly has shaped the way I, I still approach investing today is to only invest in things that you understand. Um, and in my case, I was a huge fan of this new chain that had just come to Washington, D.C., where I'm from, called Chipotle. <laughs> and my God, did that investment perform extremely, extremely well. And of course, you know, his investment advice isn't rocket science, um, but it was news to me as a 13-year-old. And it, it certainly guides me today. You know, this idea of trusting my own instincts and opinions and not following trends, I think, is such an important part about developing a unique thesis and, and becoming an excellent investor. Well, I think you brought up another commonality you and I have. My dad is also my inspiration. He was in a commercial real estate and actually guided me in my early days when I opened my own sports memorabilia business when I was 14 years old. That totally resonates with me. And it sounds like uh, you've gotten so much from him. So 
I really had a lot of fun on this podcast. This was great to hear the story, how you guys think about it. And I really, again, appreciate you being on the show and being such a great supporter of us. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Clara and Urban Innovation Fund, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.